Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great plans for us, your plans to rescue us from sin and death, and your plans to allow us to live with you forever. God, may we also remember your wonderful plans for our life here. Even before we get to see you face to face, we know that you have good plans for us. Help us to live out your plans for us, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday was Easter. We talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He died for our sins so that we could be completely forgiven. So that all of the junk that we have ever done is wiped away. And that we can have an eternal relationship with God. Now our entrance into that is through faith. We are to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. That is our only hope of eternal life. And it is a wonderful story, well worth talking about. But it doesn't end there. Your life with Christ does not end the moment you receive him as your Savior and Lord. In fact, I hope you understand that should be the beginning. And when we receive Jesus by faith, we get included in God's church. So what does it mean to be included in God's church? Well, for some people it means a lot, but for others, I think they miss out on a big part of God's plan. And let me use an illustration here. And this is an illustration, you can, uh, you can do it right now if you want to. Uh, you can take out your wallet or your purse, that, that place where you put all of your cards, or you can go home and do this later. If you, but if you were to, and I'm not thinking about like your credit cards or your bank cards or things like that. I'm thinking about all those other cards we get. You know what I'm talking about? Like you go to the department store and you're just going to buy your stuff, but they say, would you like to join our rewards program? And you say, fine, sure, I'll join your rewards program. And, and they give you a card. So you become a card-carrying member of their club. And you put that in your wallet, and you maybe don't use it for another three years. <laughs> or um, roadside assistance. How many of you have some sort of roadside assistance card in your wallet? Okay, I've got one of those. Thankfully, I have not needed to call on roadside assistance for about oh, four years or something like that. So I've, I've got it in my wallet. I am, I am a card-carrying member. I think I'm in AAA or something like that. But um, how much does my AAA membership mean to me on a day-by-day basis? I would say it means almost nothing to me. <laughs> you know, it means a lot to me if I get stranded on the road and I can, I can find it in my wallet somewhere and call the number. But I think that too many people treat their relationship with Jesus like they treat a roadside assistance membership. It's there if I need it. And, and thankfully, they are there if I need them. My car breaks down. And thankfully, Jesus is there if we need him. And he's, he's even better than the best of the roadside assistance clubs because he saves us from sin and death. He saves us from hell. So I don't mean to say that Jesus is anything less than a roadside assistance club. What I would like to suggest to you today is that he should be much more than that to us. And and here's why I say it, and I think we could all agree to it this way. If to receive salvation, we are to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are to give our lives completely to him, then we should actually give our lives to him. If we are going to give our lives to him, we should not say, I'll I'll let you save me. (laughs) Isn't that nice of us to say, I'll let you save me, but then I'm going to go and live the rest of my life the way that I want to. That should never be the way that we view our relationship with Jesus. 
You see, God has good plans for us. And like I said before, those plans don't end the moment we receive Jesus. We've been doing this series, as you can see at Cornerstone, called The Story of the Bible. Today we're doing one called The Church. But in the Old Testament, as we walked through that, we saw glimpses of the community that God was building. But there was always a problem. In the Old Testament and in our lives as well, sin gets in the way. That as much as we might say that we want to live our lives according to God's plan, we don't often do that. But even so, God has a plan to do something amazing in our midst. And it has everything to do with Jesus and his death and resurrection. But it doesn't end there. In fact, you could say that Jesus is just the first building block. I shouldn't say just. We should say that Jesus is the first building block. And I, when I say that, I don't mean first in terms of when he came on the scene. I understand that the Old Testament came and then Jesus came. When I say first, I mean something else. And I'll explain that later on. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at a New Testament passage which talks about God's plan for his church. But before we jump in, let's remind ourselves of an Old Testament passage that foreshadowed this. In Exodus 19, 5-6, this is right before God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, he gave this message to them. He said, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, of course, God's people have always had an obedience problem. So when it says there, if you obey me fully, who of us here could say that we have obeyed God fully? None of us could say that. But through Jesus, God took care of our disobedience problem. All of our sin was placed on Jesus and is therefore forgiven. And that means that God can move this plan forward. And his plan is to make us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, like it says in the last line there. So I'm going to leave that passage up there as I read our New Testament passage today. And I want you to think of those words, kingdom of priests and holy nation. So I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Or you could probably better translate that word as cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So I want to walk through this passage now, and I want to show you three things about it in which we are included in God's church. So the first part is that we are to come to Jesus. Right away in verse 4 it says, as you come to him. And let me just say, if any of you have not had your come to Jesus moment yet, you need to have it. 
So how do we come to Jesus? Well, it's explained in the rest of this passage. In verse 6, it talks about trusting in him. And then in verse 7, it uses the word believe. Now, most of the time when you're reading the, your Bible and you see words in the New Testament like trust or believe or faith, it's, it all comes from the same word in Greek. I don't know why we've chosen three different English words to translate it, but they all mean the same thing. So what do they mean? Well, let me use the word trust to explain. That's one of our words there. We are to put our trust in Jesus... We are not to put our trust in ourselves. Now think about that. It was putting our trust in ourselves that got us into this mess. When we trust in ourselves, we follow our own path. And inevitably, that is going to mean that we choose poorly at times. That's what sin is. And when we sin, the Bible tells us that we incur a death penalty. The, the penalty for our sin is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual, eternal separation from God. That is our sin penalty. Now, Jesus, who had no sin of his own, offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And that's how we are forgiven. By receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are forgiven for all of those sins that we ever committed. So, when we put it like that, who should we trust in? Jesus or ourselves? Which, which kind of trust is going to lead to life, is going to lead to eternal life? It's only trust in Jesus that will do that. But here's the thing. If we are to trust in Jesus, it means we give our whole lives to him, like I mentioned just a little bit ago. Or do you remember a uh, couple weeks ago, we looked at Mark 8.35, where Jesus said it this way, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Now, I think there are a lot of people in this world who want to save their lives. They want to build their lives according to their own ways. They have their own thoughts, their own dreams, their own desires for life, and they say, I want to live that way. Well, you can try to do it, but Jesus tells us it ends in death. What we should do then is give our lives to Jesus. And Jesus said that means that we lose our life. It means that we, we give our lives to him, we trust in him to lead us. And when we do that, he gives us new life. So we are to come to Jesus, we are to trust in him. But then there's another description of how we come to Jesus. In verse 9, it talks about how we are chosen and called. And I, I really like this part. And I want to talk to those of you who already know Jesus here for a moment. When you're telling your story, how do you tell it? Do you say, I knew that I was lost. I knew that I had a problem. I searched. I found the best answer. And I put my faith in God. If that's how you say it, there's a big part of it that you're missing. You're missing what God did. God is the one who called. None of us would have come to Jesus if God did not love us and draw us to him first. So when you're telling your story, I want to urge you to tell it in such a way that you're telling the truth of what happened, that God was after you because he loves you, that he chose you, and that he called you. He calls us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the good news of his death and resurrection, and we are to respond by putting our trust in him, by believing in him. Unfortunately, that's not what everybody does. And in verse 7, it talks about some who do not believe, those who reject. And then in verse 8, it talks about uh, those who disobey. So God calls us, and we're supposed to respond by believing. Please don't respond by rejecting or disobeying. Now, why would anybody reject Jesus? Well, as I implied earlier, we all have our own plans in life, and sometimes... God's plans don't line up with our plans. And sometimes people reject God's plans to follow their own. Please don't do that. Please know that the only path to life 
is the path in which we give our lives to Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, we become the people of God. And it talks about that in verse 10 of our passage. Um, being the people of God has been a recurring theme throughout the Bible. You could look in almost any book of the Bible and talk about this idea of the people of God. It's scattered throughout the Bible. One of my favorites is in Revelation 21.3, the second to last chapter of the Bible. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is God's heart for us, that we would forever be with him. He calls us. We are to respond by faith. And if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, I urge you to do it today. Leads to our second point. When we come to Jesus, we get included in God's house. In verse 5, it talks about how we are being built into a spiritual house. So what kind of house are we talking about here? Well, if you're remembering your Old Testament, you might remember that all throughout the Old Testament, the temple is often called the house. It's a very common description. And I've heard that the temple, along with its predecessor, the tabernacle, is the most common subject in the Old Testament. Think about all the pages and pages of descriptions of how the temple is to be built and what is to be put in it and what people are supposed to do it. Have you ever read those parts of the Old Testament? There's a lot of it. Why is there so much in there about how the temple was be to be put together and what they were supposed to do there? Because it's really important. That was the place that God chose for his name to dwell, and that was the place where God met with his people. So he gave them instructions about how they were to do it the right way. So the temple theme, again, is really important. And now, those things that we see happening in the Old Testament, specifically the part about where God meets with his people, where does that happen now in the New Testament? It happens in us. We are the temple of God. The theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way, So now in the church age, the people of God are the temple of God, the place where God dwells. Or I might say it this way, the reason that God first told the people to build a temple was because he wanted to be with them. The reason that he calls us to Jesus and puts his Holy Spirit in us is so that we now could be the temple and meet with God where we are. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Okay, so as we get back to 1 Peter then, we see this idea of God building his house, his temple. And to describe that, he uses this language of living stones in verses 4 and 5. It shouldn't surprise us to see Jesus spoken of as a living stone in verse 4. He spoke of himself earlier as a cornerstone. Using that same passage that Peter used here, Jesus used that passage in his ministry to talk about how he was the cornerstone. The one that the builders rejected is the one that God is using to build this building. And just a quick side note, I mentioned when I was reading the passage that it, it's probably a cornerstone and not a capstone, like it says in verse 7 of some translations. Uh, and the reason for that is, in verse 8, it's a stone over which people trip. Now, if you've ever tripped over a capstone, come and talk to me, because I think you might have some problems. But, um, so, Jesus is a cornerstone. But we shouldn't think of him as some inanimate cornerstone, like he's just a block of something. The language here is that he is a living stone. That might not surprise us, but what might surprise you then 
is that what Jesus is called in verse 4, the living stone, we are called in verse 5. You notice that language there? Living stone in verse 4, verse 5, living stones. It's the exact same words, it's just that they're plural. So that is who we are. I, I love this analogy, that Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone, and as we come to him, we are living stones built up on him. God is building a temple, and we are part of it. But again, we shouldn't think of a physical building. We should think about the lives that God wants us to live. And because Jesus is the cornerstone, we should be built up on him. Now let me use an illustration here. I've used this one before, but it's one that we at Cornerstone Church should really know. So um, I heard that about in, in Bible times, so 2,000 years ago or so, if you were building a house out of stones, you would try to find one really good stone to start with as your cornerstone. And obviously you need a strong stone because it's going to support the rest of the building. But there's one other interesting part about what a cornerstone did in those days. The, the shape of the cornerstone would in many ways determine the shape of the building. Because think of it, every other stone that you bring into that building is supposed to line up with the cornerstone. And that's a great analogy for our lives. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the first and most important stone. He is to be the foundation of our lives. But every part of our life is to line up with Jesus. And, and do you ever feel like sometimes like your, your life is just a little bit off kilter? Well, your life needs to line up with the cornerstone. We are like living stones, and we are built on the living stone, Jesus Christ. Every part of our life should reflect that. So that's the application question here. Does every part of your life reflect who Jesus is? In everything you do, are you doing it because of who Jesus is? Now that's a high standard, and I am not at all going to come before you and pretend that I have lived up to that standard. But it's my goal. That's what I want to do. I want everything about me to line up with who Jesus is, and I live my life as if Jesus were walking in my shoes. Is that the kind of life you're living? Is that the kind of life you want to live? I, I just want to urge you to, to give your life to Jesus in that way. So we are to come to him initially by receiving him as Savior and Lord, and then every moment of the rest of our lives should line up with who he is. And then one other point about a, a cornerstone and a building. It's a community thing. It's not just that you individually get built and I individually get built as, as we come to Jesus. No, we get built together. There are not millions of temples. There is one temple, the body of Christ, of which we all are a part as we come to God. Um, some people leave the church because they get frustrated with other Christians. Uh, they end up living very solitary lives. They might say that they're trying to continue to walk with God. Uh, in fact, have you ever heard people say it this way? I love God, I just don't love his children. It kind of sounds funny, but it's a horrible way to say it. I want to urge you to recognize that when you come to Jesus, you become part of his building, and that means you've got a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ. And brothers and sisters don't always get along, but that's the family that God has included you in when you come to Christ. We are in this together. And then it's kind of interesting. There's another part of this passage. So, so the analogy is so far that we are the temple, but then there's another part of it. In the temple, we are also the priests. So it, it says living stones. So again, we shouldn't just be thinking about blocks in a building. We should be thinking about the people of God. And in this temple, we are priests. Remember I quoted Exodus 19 that talked about how God wanted to make a, a holy priest, uh, excuse me, uh, 
a kingdom of priests? Well, look at the language in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9, where it talks about us being a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. That one in verse 9 is the exact same wording as what we saw in Exodus 19. This is where we get the idea of the priesthood of all believers. Have you ever heard that one? Every single one of us who has come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we become priests. The reason that I don't call myself Priest Eric is because we're all priests, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm somehow set apart to do spiritual work and you guys aren't. That's not at all the case. We are all priests. And that leads to the third and final point for this sermon. As priests in God's house, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the job description of a priest was to offer sacrifices. Again, there are pages and pages and pages in the Old Testament that tell them how they were supposed to serve that function as priests. Because they were supposed to lead the people of God in right worship. That's what it was all about. It was about worshiping God the right way. Well, because Jesus has already offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, we, in the New Testament, no longer need to offer those animal sacrifices that they had to offer in the Old Testament. Isn't that great? Isn't that fantastic news that, that Jesus' one sacrifice covers all of our sins, and we don't have to slaughter bulls and goats anymore to take care of our sins? God took care of it in sending Jesus. But, like it says in our passage today, we are to continue to offer these spiritual sacrifices like it says there in verse 5. So what kind of sacrifices are we to offer? Well, let's go to verse 9 of our passage to answer that question. And in verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's called us out of this life of sin and death into a new life. And what we are to do as priests in this new temple is that we are to declare God's praises. Now that's a loaded statement, to declare God's praises. And I want to break it down into three parts for you. Three different ways, well they're similar ways, in which we can declare God's praises. First, we are to declare God's praises to God. Now, we could call this worship, we could call it praise, but the idea is God has done so many good things for us that we should really spend the rest of our lives thanking him for what he's done. As his priests, we are to continually offer those sacrifices of praise. We should worship God with our lips, but then also, like it says in Romans 12:1, we should offer God with our whole lives. So whether it's what we say or whether it's what we're doing, 100% of our lives should be given to this idea of praising God. You think about an animal sacrifice. If you were, I, I've said this before, I kind of like this one. If you were to be able to ask the animal what percentage of its life was going to be given as a sacrifice, what would the animal say? 100%. It's, it's kind of an all-or-nothing deal when you offer a sacrifice of an animal. Well, it's the same with us. When we give our lives to Jesus, we're supposed to offer 100% of our lives to him as living sacrifices. So do you live a life of praise? Do you live a life of worship in which everything you do, you do because you want to honor Jesus? That's the life that we're called to live. And it's either that or we go on our own path, which again, leads only to death. Okay, so we're to, to declare God's praises to God. Second, we are to declare God's praises to each other. Remember, when we come to Jesus, we don't just come individually to him, we come as the family of God. 
And one of the things that we are to do together is that we are to remind each other to keep worshiping God. We are to encourage each other. I hope you have noticed the benefit of walking with other believers. Have you seen that in your life? Uh, There's a great illustration on this. I didn't come up with this one, but I like it. So picture yourself grilling with, with charcoal. So let's say you've got like 35 charcoal briquettes left in your bag and you've got your grill set out. Do you take those briquettes individually and space them evenly apart on the grill and then light each one of them individually? No. You put them together because they burn hotter together. And that's the idea of the church, is that we are to continue to encourage each other together to walk with God. And in this church, God has given each one of us spiritual gifts. We are to use those gifts to worship God and to encourage each other. So whatever your gift is, whether it's teaching or administration or serving or praying, whatever your gift would be, use it to the benefit of God's church, to the glory of God. Now, how do you use your spiritual gifts? Well, the best tip that I have for you on that is not to go online and take some spiritual gifts inventory. The best tip I have for you is go to your Christian friends who know you well and ask them what they think your spiritual gifts might be. And as they're doing that, then you can tell them what you think their spiritual gifts are. And then you encourage each other to use them. And one of the ways that I like to say this at Cornerstone is, don't wait for me to tell you to use your spiritual gift. There may be times when I see a gift in somebody that needs to be used and I say, hey, you should use that one. But for the most part, don't wait for me. Talk to God about it and, and be about using your spiritual gift. You will encourage God's body as you use your gift and you'll worship God. Okay, then third, we are to declare God's praises to the lost. This is the topic of verses 11 and 12. This is what we would call evangelism. And it starts out in verse 11, perhaps interestingly, by reminding us to abstain from sinful desires. Now, what does that have to do with evangelism? Well, if you're following the path of sin, and you're talking with other people who are following the path of sin, they might not see that you have anything different for them. So, we are to abstain from sinful desires, from anything that would be contrary to God's will. So it's like this two-path teaching that I've been harping on for the last few weeks. And by the way, when I repeat something, it's because I think it's important and I think we need to think about it. So two paths. One path, the, God, the, the path that God has for us. What would we call the other path? There are like a million different ways that you could describe it. But I think the most helpful way to describe it is that it's not the path that God has for you. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to avoid that path. And there's some encouraging news here in 1 Peter. Peter tells us to abstain from sinful desires. Did you know that you don't simply have to follow your animal desires? Did you know that? That if if you were to watch the Nature Channel and you were to watch a lion chase down its prey, you would say, well, that's what a lion does. That's its instinct. That's what it's going to do. But you know what? We're not lions. We're not like that. God gave us a moral compass and we can choose between right and wrong. We are all tempted with sinful desires. It talks about those sinful desires in verse 11. God knows that these sinful desires are going to tempt us. Jesus even taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And I I think what, what he meant by that was that he knew that we would be tempted and we're to pray for the strength not to follow those temptations. And the encouraging part to me about verse 11 is that we don't have to live that way. Those sinful desires wage war against your soul. Look at that phrase there at the end of verse 11. 
these sinful desires which war against your soul. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been on the path of sin and you're, you're choosing the things that you felt like you wanted to choose, but when you're there, you feel this sense of, this doesn't fulfill me. This doesn't feel right. There's something wrong here. Now, it might not always be like that. I, I'm not trying to suggest that sin always feels bad. Sometimes it feels good. That's why we do it. But have you ever been there where you feel this battle in your soul, where you know you're doing something wrong? Well, Peter tells us, abstain from those things. Don't do those things which God has told you are wrong. And the better news here of the gospel is that we have a new path of life. God will strengthen us to live on the path that he has for us. But then positively speaking, in verse 12, it shows us how our good lives can serve as a witness to those around us. Unbelievers around us are used to seeing people live unholy lives. But when we live good lives around them, part of the effect might be that they might look at us and say, what's different about you? Uh, When people say that about me, there's maybe a lot of answers. What's different about him? Well, uh, let me tell you a few things. But one of the things, the thing that's most different about me is that I love Jesus, and, and I want that to be true of you guys as well, and I want you to live such good lives around the people of Fergus Falls and the surrounding areas that when they see you, they know that there's something different about you, and it just very well might be that they might see your good deeds and glorify God. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 5. He said, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So our good deeds have an evangelistic purpose We're proclaiming the gospel in some ways as we live our good lives around them. And as God opens the door, then we tell them about who Jesus is and how they can have life in him as well. So we're to declare God's praises to God, to each other, and to the lost. And as we do those things, God continues to build his church. I love this verse in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And just think about that part right there. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus isn't like one of those contractors who who gets behind schedule or doesn't finish the job. He will build it. And he said, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some of the people in this world look at the church and reject it as a human idea. Have you ever heard people say that? You ever heard people say, oh, the church, it's, it's just some plan that some people came up with to keep other people down. Or some people think that the church is just after your money. Well, God has a much better vision for the church. And I want to conclude my sermon today by looking at another passage in the Bible that talks about this idea of the church. In Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, so you're not outsiders anymore, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So God is building this building. Jesus is the cornerstone and we are built into it as living stones. And as living stones, our lives are to follow the pattern of Jesus. God is doing his part What's our part then? As we think about this, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road here. What's our part? When we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, we automatically get included into God's church. 
Our part then should be to live that out in a local church. Again, some people look at the church, a church like Cornerstone or any other church, and they say, what's the point? Can't it just be me and God? Can't I go out and watch a sunrise and, and do my worship service there just with me and God? <coughs> well, the reason for the local church is so that we could live out in daily life what God has already told us is true of us. We, uh, we saw last Sunday at the end of Acts 2, the people when they, thousands of people came to Christ, and the very next verse is it talks about how they devoted themselves to things like prayer and fellowship with each other and teaching from God's word. The local church provides opportunity for us to do those same things and we should be devoted to them as well. Or you could look at it this way. I like this one. There are over 51 another passages in the New Testament. Many of them are commands that you cannot obey by yourself. Think about this. You cannot love one another by yourself. As hard as you try, you will never be able to love one another by yourself. We need each other as we live out the commands of God. And God's plan for the rest of your life has a whole lot to do with the church that Jesus continues to build. And that should be lived out as you get involved in a local church. Now it's funny, because every local church you've ever been a part of, including Cornerstone, has its flaws. But even so, God is building us up together. And, and I, I just want us to be people, I pray this so often for all sorts of different people, that we would get involved in God's church the way that he wants us to. And, and it's not because we here at Cornerstone are so good. Uh, it's because God's plan is so good. And we miss out on something. If, if we just take the Jesus card and put it in our wallet and forget about it for the next four years, we have missed out. Membership in God's club, in, in God's church, is meant to be lived out on a regular basis in fellowship with other people as we encourage each other to keep walking with God. So please, do your part in being regular in God's church. And then here's my final word for this sermon. I, I put a paragraph together of what I think the church is, and I just want to read it for you. The church is built on Jesus Christ and includes a bunch of sinners, thankfully, for all of us, right? But we are saved by grace through faith, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we are transformed into saints, not because we were worthy or perfect, but because God loves us and has good plans for us. Together, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to keep worshiping God, and we are to encourage each other to live according to his ways. As we do these things, we proclaim his gospel to the world, and he keeps building his church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom in sending Jesus that we could be saved from our sins. And I just want to pray right now, God, if there is anybody in here who has not yet received Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that they would receive him right now. That they would recognize the, their sin and their need for a Savior. And you can just repeat after me if you want to receive Jesus by saying, God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for sending Jesus I pray now to receive Jesus as my Savior. Please forgive me for my sins. And I pray to receive Jesus as my Lord and my Master. And God, for all of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we pray that you would help us to live our lives the way that you want to, on your path. Not the path that we would choose for ourselves, but the path that you have for us, the path that includes being priests in this new temple, 
in being involved in a local church the way that you want us to. Help us to live out the things that you want us to live out together with other believers as we encourage each other to keep seeking you. And as we do that, God, we pray that your gospel would go forth and that the lost would come to know you. God, we give of ourselves to you to proclaim your message, your praises to this world. Please do your wonderful work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.